All right. The only announcement that I know of tonight is that this afternoon or around noon today, uh, the Lord sent angels to escort uh, Bill Payne to heaven. And uh, Bill Payne, for many of you know, uh, is uh, Sharon Franklin's uh, father. And so we need to be in prayer for Sharon, for her mother, uh, Deanna, and uh, for her sister, Kristen, all of whom were founding members of West Houston Bible Church. So please be in prayer for them at this time. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. There's a lot to cover. I may decide in the process to skip over some of it. Some of it you have been taught before, so I'm going to assume that I don't need to spend a lot of time on it, some of the background information, but I'm just trying to pull some of this lesson together and finish up with uh, Lesson 10 today. So we'll get uh, get to that this evening. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, uh, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we had the opportunity Sunday to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior as a body of believers, and then yesterday with family and the opportunities to just remember the significance of the day that that etern- the eternal God entered into space-time history as a baby, as a human baby, the God-man, and that because of that and because of what he did on the cross as the God-man, we have eternal salvation by trusting in him and his death on the cross. So, Father, as we continue to study your word and uh, work our way now through Genesis a little uh, more uh, quickly, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and see how significant Abram was in laying foundations for our understanding of how we are uh, to be right with you, what justifies us, and that that is your grace through faith. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in lesson 10 still. This is the third time, the third lesson. The first lesson I did a more in-depth study. It's so important to understand justification by faith. This is, uh, there are intricacies in the way that we say this that were fought over in the Reformation, that how these things were stated were a matter of life and death truly for hundreds of believers. And some who um, held to a biblical view were put in prison. They were tortured mercilessly. And then some, and many of them gave their lives just to, uh, for the truth of the Scriptures. And so today we live in a world that thinks that that's rather silly for people to fight over religious truth. And the sad thing about that is that's why they can't believe and understand why there are those in this world who are fighting over religious truth. But their religious truth is false. So we, um, we need to understand justification 
by faith that this is God declaring us justified or righteous, not due to our own righteousness or goodness or anything in us, but due to the fact that we have been given the righteousness of Christ. It's been imputed to our account. So we looked at uh, Lesson 10. Uh, Point one was uh, to go over these things in some detail. Then last week we looked at it as we went through the curriculum, uh, reorganizing it, starting with uh, the first point, which is Abraham chose to believe God, and that was the basis for his justification. And then tonight we're going to look at justification before men because there is a different focus on justification in James chapter 2, so that's what we'll be looking at. We've looked at these the order of events. Uh, we are on the fifth one, creation, fall, flood, tower of Babel, and Abraham. Abraham is the father of all believers. If they are Jewish believers, he is ethnically their father as well as spiritually. If you are a Christian, then that, whether you're an Old Testament Gentile, but if you have trusted in God's provision of salvation through faith, then Abraham is also your father uh, spiritually. So we looked at the call of Abraham in the first uh, uh, lesson and how that uh, was explained. And then a basic definition of justification is that God declared Abraham righteous as the pattern for how everyone is justified or declared righteous. Uh, These words righteous and just are all based on the same uh, Hebrew words as well as the same Greek words. And so they're almost interchangeable in a lot of passages. So to be justified uh, means to be declared to be righteous. Genesis 15, 6 in the New King James says, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Uh, The NET translates it, Abram believed the Lord, left out the end, which I think is important although in their notes they do recognize that this is a break in the narrative, which is important. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord credited it as righteousness to him. So in that first section uh, that we're looking at, or looked at last week, uh, faith that Abram chose to believe God, and that was the means for justification. And as we looked at that, we said there's some questions that we have to answer. When did Genesis 15, 6 happen? And there's some debate over that. There are some people who think it happened then, but that violates the grammar of the passage. Some people think it happened when he believed God's promise in Genesis 12, uh, 1 through 3. But as I pointed out last time, uh, there's nothing there related to a sacrifice. And when you get to Hebrews, writer of Hebrews in the New Testament says that apart from the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So there's no understanding of that there. And so I believe that on the basis of Genesis 3.15 and Genesis chapter 4, that God had given instruction to Abraham, excuse me, to Adam and Eve about um, sacrifices and what it stood for and what that represented. There's so much information we're not given. So we're asking questions like, how did Abraham come to know about Yahweh? We don't know. Bible doesn't tell us. When did Abram first believe God's promise of salvation as it was revealed in early Genesis? Well, again, we don't know. 
What, third, what does it mean that Abraham believed in Yahweh? He believed his promise, but it, it doesn't really give us a lot of detail. There's not a lot of detail given in these first 11 or 12 chapters of, Ge- of Genesis. What does it mean that the Lord counted him as righteous? That this is an accounting term, so it's like crediting something uh, to his account. So tonight we're going to look at the second part, which is Abraham, friend of God, and the third part, lessons from Abram's life and God's covenant with him. So that is two brief points, lot to cover. So in terms of the introduction, we're going to be looking at this phrase, Abraham, friend of God, in James 2.23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted, uh, that is, imputed to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So the question is, wh- where was he called the friend of God? He's called the friend of God, I believe it's in Second Chronicles chapter 22. It said, said that um, a- Abraham, uh, God's friend. And that's all it says. It doesn't say anything more about it. It doesn't give us any more content than that. So the question we should ask is, why does James say this? I'm always asking questions. That's how you learn to read anything. You say, what do they mean by that? What, what are they describing? Why are they saying it that way? Why didn't they say it this way? So why does James make this statement about Abraham being called the friend of God? Uh, how did Abraham become the friend of God? What is the context of this verse? Now, that's very important. James 2, 14 to 26, I believe, is one of the most debated passages related to understanding faith that saves. And it's so important to understand those words. We'll get to that a little bit, not a lot in this lesson. And then uh, what questions does this raise? That is, what questions are, are, are raised in that passage in James 2, but we're not going to get too distracted by that. So a couple of things we need to understand about James 2, 23, is that there are a lot of Christians who get really confused about that. There are those that will say that there is this conflict between James and Paul, that Paul says you're saved by faith only, And that uh, James is saying, no, you're saved by faith plus works. And so there's a contradiction. So there's a contradiction in the Bible, so it can't be uh, the inspired word of God. And, of course, this is liberal theologians who take this view because they they reject uh, inerrancy of Scripture. They reject divine inspiration and infallibility to begin with before they ever open their Bible. They say, no, it can't be from God. And that shades how how they see things. Uh, Then there are others who say that James is saying that genuine saving faith is exhibited and validated by good works. And that those works will validate your faith as genuine or not. And one of the ways that those theologians, pastors, individuals are described is that they hold to a lordship gospel. And, and we've studied parts of that. We'll talk more about it as we go through this material. But it's the idea that we can have a faith in Jesus that doesn't save. 
We can believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but it's not the right kind of faith. The way you know it's the right kind of faith is if you have fruit, the right kind of fruit, the right kind of works. And so you have to look to your works for assurance of salvation. And that is not what the Scriptures teach. The Scripture teaches that it is God's power, God's knowledge that keeps us saved and that it's not up to us and it's not on the basis of our works. And so that is a a major issue, major area of debate. So I've got some important things that everybody who teaches this material should come to understand and make sure that when questions come up, that if if they do come up on any of this, that you have a little background to to, uh, answer this. So the first point is that the Bible nowhere qualifies faith with any adjective or believing, that's a verb, with an adverb. It's by faith alone. There's nothing added to it. You don't hear Jesus say that uh, for God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever sincerely believes or genuinely believes or truly believes or continues to believe will have everlasting life. It doesn't say that. It just says whoever believes. And you can believe something in a heartbeat. And If you believe the gospel is true, then that's all it is. It's so simple, yet people try to make it so hard because they want to contribute something to their salvation, and that's works. And we'll look at a little broader definition definition of works in, in just a little bit. So... You have, according to them, you have to have the right kind of works. Abraham has the right kind of works, so that validates his 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 faith in Genesis. Uh, I mean, in James two twenty three. Um, another important thing to remember is that there are really three kinds of justification in the Bible. The first kind of justification is a justification by God. God justifies; He is the one who declares us to be righteous. He does it through our faith. And our faith in Jesus Christ, our faith truly in the salvific promise. In the Old Testament, it differs, it expands, it gets more specific as time goes on due to, uh, due to more revelation. So there's justification by God through our faith alone, and it does not involve works of any time, kind. And we'll go through this passage in a minute, Romans 4, 1 through 4. Uh, Romans 4 raises the question, What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? Uh, You know, that is in terms of his fleshly, fleshy, fleshly humanity. For if Abraham was justified by works, okay, so what Paul is setting up here is, let's think through this logically. You've really got two options. He's either justified by works or he's not justified by works. So he says, first of all, if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about because he did it. He saved himself in some some way, but he can't boast before God. In verse 3, he, Paul says, for what does the Scripture say? Now, this is an important verse for what we're talking about tonight because this is a direct quote from Genesis 15, 6, and this is quoted in James 2, 23. And James seems to be saying something completely different from Paul. So that's where the conflict uh, shows up. And he just, Paul directly quotes Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him or imputed to him or reckoned to him, depending on the translation, 
for righteousness, that God credited his account with God's righteousness. So it's not Abraham's righteousness. He was still unrighteous. A second kind of justification is justification by the works of the law, and that's a false justification. This is what Paul describes in Galatians 2.16, because we know that, uh, uh, that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. That is an extremely strong passage that says works of the law don't add anything for justification. In fact, they destroy it if you're relying on works of the law. So that's the second kind of justification. The first is justification. It's based on faith, no works at all. Second is it's based on works, not faith. And the third is a justification before humans, that there's the first two have to do with a justification before God, and the the passage in James is talking about a justification uh, before humans. And so the question is raised in uh, verse 21 of James 2, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now, just so you remember this, Genesis chapter 12, when Abram is about 50 years old, is when he is called. That's Genesis 12.1, and he's already justified by faith. Genesis 22, which is some uh, 11 chapters later, is when he uh, is told by God to sacrifice Isaac. And so by then, he's already been justified. He's, he's probably 120 years old by that time. And um, he's already been justified for 70 years. So these are talking about two different events in his life. So that would indicate there are two different types or categories of justification. And so verse 22, we read, do you see that faith was working together uh, with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect. Now, a lot of people get confused by that word, be perfect. The, gr- the Greek word there is teleao, which is a verb, and we run into it in James near the very beginning. Uh, when we read in James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the f- testing of your faith produces endurance. And endurance will have its perfect result. Well, it's, we think of perfect as flawless or sinless. That's not what the word means. It means to bring something to uh, its fulfillment or conclusion or to maturity. And so it really has that idea that um, you see that faith was working together with his works. That goes back to what James is talking about in James uh, 1, 2 through 4 that he's brought to maturity uh, through these various tests. And if you want to go back and listen to my Genesis series, or uh, I did a special at Tucson Bible Church last year where I went through the ten, uh, the 10 tests that God took Abraham through before you get to uh, Genesis 22. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. 
that's the same verse, Genesis 15, 6, the same verse that Paul quotes. And then he adds, and he was called the friend of God. Well, when did that happen? How did that happen? And then he concludes, you see then that a man is justified by works. And notice I've underlined this, not only justified by faith. Now, this may be too technical to get into if you're teaching uh, younger kids. But the, the problem is when you look at your, your English, it says uh, not justified by faith alone. Well, the problem is, is that the Greek word that is translated alone or only is an adverb. This is why grammar is so important. What is faith? Is that a verb or a noun? That's a noun. So an adverb does not modify a noun. An adverb modifies a verb. What's the verb? To justify. So it is a man is not only justified by faith. In other words, there are two different kinds of justification, okay? Not that we're justified by two different things, faith and works. So a lot of things always come down to paying attention to that gnarly little thing called grammar. Third thing we ought to remember is that the word saved in the Bible is used three ways, in terms of the spiritual life, but a lot of times it just means physical deliverance or healing from being sick, something like that. And so when we look at this, and we have, I put the chart up here, stage one is justification. Stage two is our spiritual life, and stage three is glorification. Stage one, we're saved from the penalty of sin. In other words, we're delivered from an eternity in the lake of fire. We are saved from the penalty of sin. Is that what James is talking about? He's talking to believers again and again and again. If you read through the epistle of James, he refers to his readers as my brethren, my brethren, my beloved brethren. He is writing to believers about how to deal with the testings in life. So he's not talking to these uh, readers about how to be saved in terms of phase one, in terms of being saved from the penalty of sin. He's talking to them about how to be delivered and survive and do well as you go through the uh, testing of life. So that has to do with being saved from the power of sin rather than facing your adversity and your challenges through your sin nature, which always seems to feel better at first and to be the easier course of action, but it's self-destructive. And so this is translated more as a present tense. You, we are being saved. Um, Earl Rodmacher, who was the president of Portland, um, what is now Portland Seminary, I think. It used to be um, uh, conservative ba Western Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary would say, if somebody asked me if he, would say, say, if he was saved, he would say, yes, I was saved. I am being saved. I was saved this morning. I was saved at lunch. I'm saved now. I'll be saved tomorrow, and ultimately I will be saved for eternity. That You have to understand the tenses of uh, salvation. So glorification, we're saved from the presence of sin. We're separated from our mortal bodies and our sin nature. And another thing that's important to understand is what works means. And that's often understood and so important to understand these things within the context of James. James talks about three things, be quick to hear, 
slow to speak and slow to anger. That's the outline that he gives. I think that's in James 1, uh, 20 or 21. And this is uh, the structure of the of the whole epistle. When he gets there and he says, um, um, verse 19, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. The first part is talking about hearing and doing. Well, hearing and doing then becomes parallel to faith and works in the second chapter. So hearing is hearing with faith. And then doing is just applying what you've heard. It's So when the Bible says pray without ceasing, we need to recognize that we need to pray more. So if you don't go home and pray, start praying more and it start affecting your prayer life, then you're not doing what you heard. You're not work, doing the work of what you believed. So the word works is parallel to doing or just simply uh, applying what we uh, have heard and say that we believe. So works is is to be understand, understood as the application of of what we have taught. Second thing we have to understand is that a dead faith is not a non-existent faith. You'll hear that from a lot of people. They'll say, well, um, faith without works is dead, so you must have a dead faith. You're not saved. No, a dead faith, a dead faith. Uh, I remember the first time I taught this up in Connecticut, it was springtime when we went up there, and a lot of critters were coming out of hibernation, and I, w- I was amazed. I mean, I grew up in Texas, and I went out and central texas and hill country a lot and i drive all over the highways i never saw roadkill like i saw in connecticut i mean there was roadkill everywhere but you know what every one of those skunks every one of those raccoons every one of those squirrels had once been alive there's one thing you can see when you see something that's dead it has been alive and that's important that this is not talking about something that is non-existent it's talking about something that is no longer use, useful. It's useless. And so a faith where you are not applying what you've learned is a useless faith. You're not growing. You're not going to mature. You're not going to handle the problems of life, the testing that comes if you aren't applying the word. And so your faith has become useless. It's just sort of some academic exercise, but it's not going to bring um, uh, bring spiritual growth through the challenges of life. And then uh, fifth point is that uh, under E, both Paul and James cite Genesis 15:6, a verse that describes the point in Abraham's early life when he believed God's promise of one who would save us from sin and Satan and, def- and God declared him righteous through his faith. So you've got this verse, and it describes the early stage in his phase one justification. And then that grows to maturity because you're born, when you are born again, when you're regenerate, you are a baby believer. And what James is talking about is God takes you through these various tests of life and gives you the opportunity to apply what you're learning. And as you do that, you grow and you mature. And so the picture that we see in Abraham is he goes through all of these various tests, and he, he blows most of them. And, uh, but we grow through our mistakes more than we do by the things we do right. And so eventually he gets it right. 
when he comes to uh, God's uh, directing him to sacrifice to sacrifice Isaac. So back to James two twenty three, it says, and the scripture was fulfilled, uh, which says Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Uh, why does James make this statement about being called the friend of God? Well, we sort of have to answer that theologically by going to certain passages. And we do that by addressing the questions we did already. When did God justify Abraham? Before, this is one of the headings in your, um, in your uh, curriculum, but I've emphasized a couple, a couple of things. I've emphasized the before and the did. Before Abraham did anything, God justified him. Before he was circumcised, before the law even came into existence, before the covenant, before Abraham did anything, God justified him. So a couple of things to be reminded of. We have to remember that we're justified. We are justified. We're sinners. That before, excuse me. Before we were justified, we're sinners. We have a lack of righteousness. And that keeps us from God because God is perfectly righteous. He cannot have anything to do with us. He cannot have any fellowship with us. But God initiated salvation for us. And so our relative or negative righteousness is rejected and it's incompatible with God's perfect righteousness. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we are still sinners... And unrighteous people, those who have not received the imputation of righteousness, are often referred to as sinners and the wicked because that's who they are positionally. So God had to provide us with the righteousness, not our own. So we're going to go through Romans 4 a little quickly. And the first three verses, Paul lays down the principle that it is by um, faith in God's saving promise to Abraham in the Old Testament, and it's imputed to him as righteousness. It is not by works. Now, I'm going to skip ahead because what we see when we come down to Romans 5, 10, and 11 is that Paul says, for if when we were enemies, okay, so he's describing our state prior to justification as enemies. When when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Moreover, having been reconciled, notice that, having been reconciled. Is that past tense, present tense, future tense? Having been reconciled. It refers to something that's happened in the past. So it's over and done with. We're reconciled. We shall be saved by his life. One of the interesting things in Romans is that Paul never uses the word group for salvation, sozo. He never uses salvation as a synonym for justification or reconciliation. That's really important to understand some passages. So we've been reconciled in the past, and this salvation is, as we look at Christ's life, and we do what he modeled for us, then we will grow and mature in our relationship with the Lord. 
second point is that one of the consequences of Abram's new possession of righteousness is that at the same time that he received the imputation of righteousness, he has peace with God. It's like two sides of the same coin. He is uh, declared righteous, and instantly he has peace with God because now he is plus R, he has positive righteousness, and God is positive righteousness, and so they can uh, have fellowship. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified, is that future or past or present? Having been. It's the past again. Having been justified by faith, we have, now we have the present reality because once we enter into this new state of peace with God or we're reconciled, it continues that nothing you and I can do can, can do away with this new state of peace. Now, we can create problems because of sin. We have to confess sin, but this is our new legal position uh, with God. So Abraham's justification was before he did anything, before he was circumcised, before the covenant was made. Romans 4, 9 says, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? See, Paul has to deal with the fact that there were these, uh, we call them Judaizers, there were these Jewish background believers who were saying, Oh, no, it's it's not just enough to, to say you believe in Jesus and his death on the cross. You have to also... Uh, do what the law says. You have to be circumcised or you won't be saved or you really can't even grow spiritually. And so Paul says, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it account, accounted or imputed while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So circumcision is part of the Mosaic law, but it's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And so what Paul is saying is when when Abraham is justified, it was long before he was circumcised and, and the covenant was given. So he is the father of the Gentiles who are saved without the works of the law, and he is the father of those who in the Old Testament are saved uh, by following the circumcision, but that, that isn't what saved them. It's their faith in God that uh, is what God looks at. So in uh, Romans 4.11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. So see, he is righteous by faith when he's still uncircumcised. So it's not through circumcision or the works of the law. It is through faith alone. Okay, so in your material, you'll see a chart. It looks a little different from this one. I had to fix this one because it had this uh, uh, tan box over here, uh, over here after the call of Abram, and I moved it here because Abram believed the Lord at some time prior to Genesis 12.1. So it's after he's justified that God calls him in Genesis 12.1-9, that he gives the covenant in Genesis 15, and then the sign of the covenant of circumcision in Genesis 17. So he's justified long before any of these other three things uh, took place. So he believed God, he believed God's promise going back to Genesis 3.15, 
And so it was accounted to him, imputed to him as righteous. So in a newborn baby, newborn believer is there. Uh, his whole habit patterns, his whole way of thinking is still pagan. Everything about him is, is pagan. He's got bad habits. He's got evil habits. He's got um, ways of thinking, belief systems that are all wrong. So he's, it's going to be difficult to look at him and say he is a believer. Uh, this is one of the most important questions I think that I have asked of a number. There, there were, when I was at Dallas Seminary, there were a number of, um, of I believe, really, really good, solid, solid men who were, who were what I would call soft lordship or almost free grace. And I would go to a couple of them. One of them was um, uh, Bob Leitner. I was his uh, teaching assistant. And I asked him this question. This was many years later. And uh, I've asked him a couple of others. I said, okay, here's a scenario. You've got this, this dude down on Times Square, and uh, he's, been, uh, he's a drug dealer. And he's walking along, and he sees this Salvation Army guy. So he decides to kind of tease the guy a little bit, and he does, though. And this guy is very adept at what he does. And the Salvation Army guy leads him to the Lord, and he actually believes what John's gospel says. He believes that Jesus is the promised and prophesied Messiah who died on the cross for his sins. Now, according to the Gospel of John, which uses that kind of phraseology over 95 times, this guy believed that, believes that, and he's saved. But that's all he knows. He's a new creature in Christ. He goes home. He goes back to, he's got, you know, two or three hoes. He goes back, gets in his crib. They shoot up some cocaine, heroin that night, whatever, and he ODs and dies. Is he saved? And I've had several several guys say, that's really hard, but probably not. Well, you don't understand grace. You don't understand that Christ paid for every single sin and that he, he is phase one. He is saved, justified. He just doesn't know enough about what he's supposed to do or believe or act or anything because nobody's taught him anything. He's never had anybody give him a bottle with the milk of the word in it. So how do you expect him to know what he should or shouldn't do? And I'm telling you, that is a hard illustration, but it separates free grace from those who don't understand free grace. But as you go through your life you're, and you mature, the second kind of justification appears. People will look at your life and your application of the word your works, what you're doing, and you, they will see as you mature that you are justified before men. It's not a justification before God. So the first example of this is that Abraham trusted in God's promise of land. When I break this down into about 10 different tests, this is the first one. God said, get up, pack your bags, and you're going to go and where I'm going to tell you, but I'm not going to tell you yet. That's test number one. And he's, he's told to uh, go without his family, leave, leave all your family behind. But he takes his nephew and his father with him. So he gets a B-minus or a C-plus. And he makes it to Haran. 
and he has to sit it out there for a while until his father dies, and then he leaves there, and he heads south, and, and he still has Lot with him. God eventually is going to have to take him through a little difficult challenge because uh, Lot's cowboys and his cowboys don't get along. And so Abraham has to come out and say, okay, your people, my people, they don't get along together. So you pick your land, which part of the land you want to live in, and we'll take the rest of it. He's very gracious in that. That was another test. So he has these various tests. But the first one, um, he gets a, you know, C plus, B minus. Second, second example is that uh, he trusts in God's promise that there would be, uh, he would have descendants. But it took a little while. Chapter 15, the beginning of that, he says, well, you know, I'm about 10 or 15 years older now. We're not having any babies. Um, we got an idea, though, that Eliezer was reared in our house. He's our servant. And the way the culture works is I can adopt him, and he's my descendant. And that'll solve your problem, God. And God says, no, that's going to come from your own body. So he flunked that test. He flunks it two or three more times. He flunks it when uh, he gets down to a situation uh, with Hagar. And Hagar was a slave that they picked up in Egypt and brought back. And Sarah says, it just isn't going to happen. It's been 25 years. Nothing's going to happen. I'm not going to have any babies. And um, let's just make it easy for God. And, uh, I, she, you know, uh, Hagar has the uh, status, legal status of a concubine. You can um, use her as a surrogate mother. And so surrogacy starts right then and there. And so he's going to go into Hagar and just go over and look at what's going on between Hamas and Israel today, and you see the results of that that action. It's a good thing done in a wrong way. And it's led to all kinds of problems. So in Romans 4.18, um, it tells us, though, that he, though he, was, he wasn't weak in faith, he still believed God, but he's looking at the, his experience, and he's saying, mm, this isn't going to happen. And, but God knows what his overall belief is. Now, some people have trouble because it says that David's a man after God's own heart. And maybe you can, you can relate to this in your experience. David committed several really heinous sins. Sins that were not only prohibited by the Mosaic law, but they were death penalty sins. But God says, and he's not, per, he's not being permissive. God says, I under, basically, I understand that David, Abraham, they're all sinners. They're going to fail at times, many times. But their overall orientation of their heart is to know me and to do the right thing. And I think that's true of a lot, a lot of believers. They're growing, but, but they're going to stumble. They're going to sin. And that's why we have uh, the grace of 1 John 1, nine, And it, it's not permissive. It's not uh, libertinism. It's that, that God knows that what we're made and that we have a sin nature. So in the third example... Uh, we come to the fact that that finally, and if we go back and we were to look at um, a couple of other passages, 
we would see that, that Abraham had come to a point by chapter 21 that he's recognizing God's going to do it, and he's going to do it the way he says he's going to do it, and that's that. He really has a faith that doesn't waver at all. And then we read in Hebrews eleven seventeen that that when uh, he was tested and God said to offer up Isaac as a burnt offering, uh, and he said, and he was probably thinking, well, this is this is the seed that the promise is going to come through, so God's going to be true to His word, and I'm going to go kill him, and God's going to bring him back from the dead. He had that that his faith had been strengthened. He had matured. He recognized. God's in control. God doesn't promise things he's not going to pull off, and so I just have to trust him. And so he concluded that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. He hadn't. He had never heard of Lazarus. He had never heard of Jesus. He had never heard of Elisha or Elijah raising anybody from the dead. But he came to this conclusion on his own. Now that that's that's faith. That's what. Hebrews 11 is talking about. So he obeyed God. So we see the visible outworking through his application of the word and his faith is brought to maturity. And that's what James is talking about. So we look at uh, James 2.21 and was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? And then do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works his faith was made mature? That's how it should be translated. And the scriptures were fulfilled or brought to completion, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But that was 50, 60, 70 years earlier. And he's called the friend of God. He's called the friend of God because of Romans 5.1 that having been justified, we have peace with God. So the enmity is not there anymore. We are God's friend. So we look at this passage, and here's where I've, I, on this slide, I've just corrected, corrected it um, down in verse 24, that a man is justified by works and not only justified by faith. So two different kinds of justification, a justification by God and a justification before men. So first of all, we have to remember that before we're justified, we're sinners. We've already gone through that. We were enemies. The sin problem is solved by by God, and when we believe his promise that the seed of the woman is going to defeat the seed of the serpent— and the serpent is Satan, then believing that promise, he imputes his righteousness to us. Okay, so that brings us back to this chart. So we have Abraham's faith first, and then the call of Abraham, the covenant, circumcision as a sign of the covenant, and the sacrifice of Isaac all come later. So Paul is talking about justification by God, which occurred early in, earlier in Abraham's life. James is talking about being justified before man. So we have two different kinds of justification here. Justification by God is pictured here. 
We have an inward faith in God, in God's promise, and we are declared righteous ultimately even in the Old Testament by the work of Christ on the cross. Secondly, justification before others are outward acts of obedience. It shows our faith toward others. Now, I pointed out some of this already that Abraham's faith was not... um, not mature for a while. He failed a lot of tests. Uh, The first example is uh, that Abraham and Sarah were trying to help God out with Hagar, and that didn't didn't work. The second example is that Abraham laughed when God told him it was time to have a son. And if you read down to verse 17, after God makes his promise that this time next year Sarah's going to have a son, Abraham falls down on his face. He falls down laughing. And uh, he's thinking, this can't happen. This is impossible. Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And so Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And so he says, Ishmael, take Ishmael. He's the one. But that's not God's plan. So God is going to provide a miraculous, truly miraculous conception and birth of Isaac and fulfill his promise to Abraham. But the slave wife, his concubine, Hagar, is going to give birth, normal birth, and normal process of conception and birth, and Ishmael comes, and uh, he's got to be sent away because that's just going to cause problems. third time that he showed a lack of protection is in Genesis 20 when he's going to um, Abimelech, who's the king of the Philistine king, and he says, um, uh, oh, this is my wife. I mean, this is my sister, not my wife. And that puts her in danger because he could take her and put her into his harem. And then that would threaten her purity. And this child has to be a child that is between Abraham and Sarah. And so God comes and speaks to him in a dream. says, wake up, buddy. You get that woman out of here and back to her husband right away. Or everybody in your city is going to come under severe judgment. And so immediately he got up, and he was really mad at Abraham for putting him in that sort of situation. And what we read about this in Romans 4.20 is that he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, what God had promised, he was able to perform. So after you go through these things and Isaac is born, he looks back on it and he says, God did exactly what he said he would, would do. And all his life, every time he would call Isaac's name, he would come, laughter, laughter, come here, laughter. He's being reminded of his own laughing at God and how God came through when he didn't think he could. And so Abram's faith is strengthened so that by the time God tells him to go sacrifice Isaac, he's convinced God God did all of this. He's not going to fail me now. So in this chart that you have in the curriculum, this is really 
what they've described here is over here is justification. And then see, there's a blue line here, which is our ups and downs in our spiritual life. The white line is the area of obedience and the black shaded area is the area of disobedience. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that that, that line's not drawn right. Are those, those little dips into the black, well, they should be just little dips into the white. rest of the time I'm down there uh, walking in disobedience. Well, maybe you'll change. So this is stage one, saved from the penalty of sin, justification, reconciled to God. Then this is our Christian life, our Christian walk, where we're, we're being saved from the power of sin. And then we go out the door at the other end, and we're in stage three, absent from the body, uh, face-to-face with the Lord. So Abram is called the friend of God. Yahweh had fellowship with Abraham by having a meal with him. Meal eating together is always a picture in the Middle East of, of fellowship, of being involved together. And so when uh, God and two angels are seen coming to visit Abraham in his tent, he's going to prepare a meal for them. So he goes to the refrigerator or the freezer, and he pulls out a microwave dinner and sticks it in the microwave and brings it back to the table, right? No. He's going to have to go out and find a calf, and he's going to bring the calf back, and he's going to slit the calf's throat, and then he has to skin the calf. And typically what you would have to do is elevate the body, hook a rope around his neck and haul him up and let the blood, and you slit him down the middle and you take out all the viscera, and then you have to clean him. And then, uh, you know, if he's working in a hurry, he would pars- he could just get away with partially skinning. But, you know, he's got what, 170, 270 servants, so they're helping, so they could go a little bit faster. And then he, he probably has some of them building a fire and getting that all ready for the barbecue, and then they're going to have barbecue. Abraham initially may have been a Texan, I don't know. But um, it took time to do this. And so there's, they, they bring out some uh, snacks and some nachos and the, some appetizers for the... Uh, uh, for the angels, and they eat, and then they rest while all of this is going on. So it doesn't happen just in a hurry. And then the Lord um, is going to tell him about what he what he is about to do. I'm going to skip reading some of it because I've just summarized it. But this is there's an intimacy in the relationship with Abraham by this point, and. Uh, as they, the, the angels get up and they look toward Sodom and Gomorrah because you've already been told that they're going to bring judgment on Sodom. Abraham goes part of the way with them. And now the Lord says to himself, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have known him in order that he may command his children and household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Now that's a picture of their friendship. That's why the writer of Second Chronicles summarizes this as God's friend. They look and act like they've got a close relationship. 
So the third point is that Yahweh offered Abraham the opportunity to intercede and pray for Sodom and Gomorrah. And so this is then described in verses uh, 22 to 26. And so you see, this is a prayer. Abraham is talking to God. Don't we normally call that prayer? And notice how he is putting forth a legal case. He's saying, God, don't you think that if there were, would, would you save all those people if there were 100 righteous people there? And by righteous people, uh, he means believers. Lot. Now, we all have studied Lot a little bit. Maybe you haven't studied him a lot, but you have studied him. In Peter, he is called righteous Lot. That is not an adjective we would normally assign to Lot. But that indicates that he is positionally righteous. He too has believed God. And um, and so he's, he's down there enjoying living there amongst um, the homosexual community of the Jordan Valley. Uh, just imagine if you had uh, somebody who was a believer who was going down uh, to Montrose and living there, eating out and participating, uh, enjoying all of the festivities and the gay pride parade and everything. Um, are they really someone who is living out the Christian life? Or if they go to San Francisco, whatever. They may not participate in the sin, but they are not living a life that is honoring and glorifying God. Their values are somewhat out of whack. So Abraham says, well, if there's 50 righteous, would you destroy it? And then he goes on down to, or the, if to, he works it from 50 to 20 down to five. And the Lord, each time the Lord said, well, I would, I would uh, hold back. And then finally he, he says, okay, I'll have the angels bring them out. And so what we see in terms of his friendship with God is that there is a fellowship, which is an intimate partnership towards a common goal between God and Abraham. God reveals his heart. He says, should I tell Abraham what I'm going to do? And then third, God invites Abraham to participate in the work through prayer. That brings us to the last part of the lesson. The last part of the lesson looks at some lessons from Abraham's life and God's covenant with him. So the first part of this is that just as Yahweh made Abraham promises and invited Abraham to trust him, God's promises, God promises us reconciliation with him if we place our trust in him. It's our responsibility to respond to God's call and invitation. That's what it means when we say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is a command. It's an imperative. It's an invitation. An imperative is not barking an order. It might be. But an imperative is when you say, you know, would you please come with me? That would be in the imperative mood. When we make a request of God, we're not commanding God to do something. We're not involved with the name and claim it heresy of the charismatics, they think, well, it's because if it's an imperative, we need to command God and tell him what to do. No, that's a vast misrepresentation of grammar. 
But if you just ask somebody politely to do something, you put that you'd put that in the imperative mood. So um, the gospel offer is an invitation to salvation. Second Peter three nine says that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but He is long suffering toward us. And I think as we look on the world today and as we've seen how things have changed in just the last 25 or 30 years, I hear more and more believers say, I just wish the Lord would come back. But the Lord, on the basis of this verse, that he is long-suffering is saying, there are more who will be saved. There are more who will be saved. And we're going to wait until we get enough, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So that's what's, what is happening. Galatians 3, 8, and 9. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel, evangelized uh, to Abraham beforehand. So the scripture, some form of scripture, was proclaimed to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So this is related to God's call in Genesis 12. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So then we have this chart. Notice the difference with what's in the material is the material has kind of a neutral position here, which I don't think you're either unrighteous or you're righteous. You're not neutral. And that uh, here we have Abraham. Uh, There needs to be a death to pay for sin. That will take place in the future. And you need to live a perfect life by God's standards. Jesus lived a perfect life. So Jesus paid the penalty of death. That is applied to believers when they trust in God's promise. And Jesus' righteousness is then applied to believers. Second lesson is just as Abraham was made righteous based entirely on his faith, Likewise, we too are justified by Yahweh entirely based on our faith. Works are excluded. In fact, if you try to add works, you destroy the faith. It's only saving faith if you're not relying on anything else other than Christ. Because if you're relying on anything else, you're relying on human viewpoint and human effort. And you're mixing that in with what Christ did on the cross. Romans 4.22 then says, It was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, this was not written, that is, the events of Genesis were not written for his sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. I think that's another indication that understanding the resurrection to some degree, and, you know, it can be the the level of a two-year-old or three-year-old understanding that, that it is part of the gospel message. So on the basis of Abram's faith, God counted Abram righteous, and it was recorded so we know It is also how God counts us righteous because of our faith. Now, the third lesson is that Yahweh wants to have a genuine relationship with us where he fellowships with us 
speaks with us, and we come to him in prayer. So we have this wonderful statement by Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 14 and following, where he talks to his disciples and he says, you are my friends using the noun form of philos. You are my friends. There's an intimacy there. So when uh, God calls Abraham his friend, that's because he's now been made righteous. You're my friends. And then Jesus says, if you do what I, whatever I command you. Well, he's talking to his apostles as apostles. And the next verse he says, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, that's not about salvation. So many people read into that. He chose, why did, what did he do? He chose these 11 now. He chose these 11 to be apostles. That's what he's talking about. He's not, I chose you for eternal life. That's not the context. He says, I chose you to be apostles. And now you're going to go out and you're going to do uh, what I wanted you to do. And you're going to go and bear fruit that your fruit should remain. So that's not a verse talking about divine election and that they were chosen and others were not. Salvation is not part of that context. Then as you come to the end of of the curriculum, they have a boxed sort of boxed discussion area, which I think is is good, and they've done a good job putting this together. And it talks about the fact that um, a lot of people think that you can tell if a person is justified or not by looking at how he lives his life. Now, I've got an illustration of this. I don't know. I don't know that any human ever knows for sure about somebody else except I know about me. And if I ask myself the question I asked John MacArthur one time, how sure are you that you would go to heaven if you died right now, I would say I'm 128% sure. I'm absolutely sure. I have no doubt in my mind that if I died right now, I would wake up in the arms of Jesus. But lordship people can't answer that way. It's astonishing. So we have a lot of people who think that they can look at somebody or watch their life, and how many times you've probably said it. I know I probably said it when I was younger. How in that world can that person be a Christian and do that? There's a well-known president of the United States from back in the 90s who was from Arkansas. And every Sunday he was, um, he was on TV at the First Baptist Church of Little Rock. And... Um, I can't remember the pastor's name now, Vaught. I think it was Vaught, something like that. And uh, W.O. Vaught. And he got on Pastor Themes tapes back in the 80s when Governor Clinton was singing in the choir behind him. He was there because if he was behind the pastor, he'd be on TV all over Arkansas. But W. Vaught had many conversations with him and said he is a believer. There's no doubt about it. Now, a lot of people would say, well, how can you say that? Look at what he did. See, you just rejected everything I just taught in the last hour. All you need is just a, a, a moment of faith 
where you hear the gospel and you say, I believe that. But then you can be like the prodigal son and spend the rest of your life living out in the pigs and eating corn cobs. And that's true for a lot of believers. But a lot of times, you can't even tell the difference. You think they're saved. They're so nice. They're so good. They go to church all the time. John thirteen twenty one. when Jesus had said these things, he's been washing the disciples' feet and teaching them about forgiving one another. He says to his 12, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. What happened? The disciples start turning to each other and whispering, who is it? Is it you? Who's going to betray him? They had no idea that it was Judas. They'd been living, camping, walking, hiking with Judas for three years. And he didn't seem to be any different from the rest of them. And yet he wasn't a a believer. So you can't tell. I can't tell because we are not omniscient. And so they have this this discussion, and then Jesus is going to identify him by the one he hands the uh, sop to. So um, we have to recognize Yahweh is all-knowing. He's omniscient. He's infinite, and he has just judgments. He knows who believes and who does The instant you believe, you don't have to pray a prayer, walk the aisle, raise your hand, shout hallelujah or amen or anything else. As long as you say, that's right, I believe that, I trust Jesus. Now, you may go through several times in your life when you hear the gospel, remind God, you remember? Don't forget, I know you're omniscient, but just in case, don't forget, I I believed. I did that a number of times probably when I was about 11, 12, 13, every time somebody to give the gospel, I think. Yeah, just don't, don't forget. So four examples why we cannot determine who is saved. First of all, good works are relative. We just can't tell whether somebody's in fellowship or not. You know, there are a lot of people who witness, who read the Bible, who pray, and they don't have a clue how to be in right relationship with the Lord. There are people who uh, are, are characterized by certain sins, and we say, and, and, you know, and then they claim they got saved, and every now and then you see one. I remember talking with a lordship professor I had at seminary, and he came up. He said, well, there's, and he was working as, with one of, the, one of the professors was a chaplain of the Dallas Cowboys, and he was working with, with him. And he said, so we've got this, this guy. He said, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but, but you know, these guys are always have women throwing themselves at him. And he claims he got saved, but he, he still slept with over 100 women last year. I said, how many did he sleep with before? Over 300. Wow, that's a big improvement. See, a lot of people will say, well, you still commit that sin, so you can't be saved. And good works can be invisible. God tells us to pray in secret, give in secret, do good works in secret. You're not supposed to be a show-off about it. Third thing is that God, good works can be passive in nature, like self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Peace, that's inner peace. Self-control. 
kindness, gentleness. You know, there's a lot of kind unbelievers. Fourth, good works, good works can be inconsistent. So believers can fail to li- live good lives, and unbelievers can live relatively good lives. So Peter turns around and saw uh, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, following. And then he turns back to Jesus and says, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? We can't look at somebody. We can't live with somebody and say that, oh, yeah, I know they're a believer. Now, they can tell us and they can, you know, we can see that evidence a lot like what Abraham did is he sacrificed or was about to sacrifice Isaac. And that shows visible, uh, gives a visible witness to justification before men. Okay, so that's the lesson that finishes up lesson 10. Uh, lesson 11 is going to jump from Genesis 15, 17, 19, and it's going to go from the end of Abraham to through the Exodus. So it's high speed time through a lot of events. So we'll be back to do that next Tuesday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go through this material and understand it and hopefully understand it a little better that it's all your grace. It is us just trusting you, believing what you've said and you declare us righteous. What an amazing thing that we have your perfect righteousness imputed to us simply because we believe that you will fulfill your promise. So we thank you for your grace and your goodness and all of the ways in which you provide for us and mature us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.